Please welcome to the show my next guest, author of Choosing Hope, One Woman, Three Cancers, a story of inspiration, resilience, and courage, Munira Premji. Hi. I am so beyond delighted to be on your show. You know, I'm quite the fan, Karim. <laughs> You're the one. I've been looking for that fan, and uh, I finally found her. So thank you so much. Pleasure. And thanks for your time as well. Really glad to be doing this with you today. So, Manira, um, this is a, obviously, it's an interesting book. Um, I don't know whether you find it interesting. I've, I, you know, we were talking before we started recording um, about uh, you many, many years ago uh, seeing me speak on stage somewhere and having an inkling that I'd be doing something like this. And I can, I never take myself seriously. Um, but thank you for those kind words. But I, I'm wondering, what do you think of your book? That's a great question. You know, this book has been four years in the making. And when I wrote draft one, that was about two years ago. And I thought it was pretty good until I shared it with my kids. Mm -hmm. And uh, the feedback I got was pretty brutal. <laughs> from I your kids? From my kids. Jeez. Um, Sabrina said, I think there's potential to make it better. She was very diplomatic. Mm -hmm. And my son, Shane, gave me eight pages of brutal, um, single-spaced feedback. And he really was very detailed about what I needed to do to make the book come alive. Yeah. And so I sat with that feedback for a, for a bit and uh, decided that I was going to rewrite the book. And it took me a year to rewrite the book. And once it was complete, mm -hmm. I knew that this was the book that I could be so incredibly proud of. Oh, so wow. okay. right now where I'm sitting, I am just so um, happy with the way that it, it turned out. Wonderful. Well, that, that, is, that is good. Listen, I, I, want to, um, I want to ask how... As a cancer survivor, mm -hmm. um, and as and as we're living during this this period of uh, of COVID nineteen, um, you know, parts of the world are, are starting to open up, but many many people are still in uh, you know isolating themselves. Um, what? How have you been dealing with with this uh, with this crisis? How has it impacted your life? In two ways, really. Um, the first, from a personal perspective, mm -hmm. I work from home. So in, in that perspective, you know, my life has not changed. What has changed, though, is the life around me. You know, when I see friends and colleagues, I, I listen to the news. You know, I recognize how interconnected we are with everybody in the world, you know, and, and there's something about the oneness of humanity that really touches me. Mm. And I um, am using this time to really reach out to people, people that I haven't spoken to in years. I'm using this time to um, connect and help people where I can, you know, to uh, to, to support them during this time because I have friends who've lost jobs. I have friends sure. who, um, you know, have been diagnosed with cancer but are not able to go forward for treatment or individuals oh. who have lost their parents in the hospital during this time um, and have not been able to attend the funeral, you know. Yeah. And so this is, you know, clearly really unprecedented time and um, I am like everybody else I think doing what I can in the moment to to shine a little bit of light where I can yeah wow and in another way um, 
I've also found that I have been incredibly productive during this time in, in a crazy way. <laughs> I find that I'm, uh, I've, I've learned to make at least 10 new dishes in the last couple of months. Wow. I'm reading voraciously. Um, I decided that I was not going to let a pandemic go to waste. So I decided that I was going to start a podcast, which I'm actually doing next week on Monday. Um, and so part of this time is really about figuring out what does a podcast look like, you know, and, and why do I want to do this and mm -hmm. what's good hosting and what can I learn? And so um, it's been a, it's been an interesting time of connection, of productivity and of learning to work in the same space as my husband, because that's certainly yeah. new for us. <laughs> Absolutely. You, I can't remember where I read it. it well, so you, it must have been a blog post or something you put up on social about what you could learn from this pandemic. Um, you said something about COVID-19 being your teacher. Something along those lines, I think, you, you, you said or you wrote. So I'm, I want to ask you, what has this pandemic taught you? You know, um, I did write a post about this. And it really was comparing my experience of going through cancer with the pandemic and how, you know, both were teaching or teachable moments for me. So what I mean by that is, you know, when I think about my journey with three cancers, three advanced cancers, um, I had to go through this period of isolation because my immunity was so low that I really could not connect with people, you know, which is what we're seeing happening today through the government, right? Yeah. Um, I went through stages of denial when I was going through my cancer. This can't possibly be happening to me. And all I wanted to do was, you know, let's get this treatment done so that I can go back to normal. Mm. And that's what I'm seeing happening with the pandemic today. It's, uh, you know, with, with a lot of us, uh, with our governments, um, around the world, you know, there was this period of denial. Um, there was this period of um, uncertainty and anxiety. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what happens when you are a cancer patient until you come to that point of acceptance, until you come to that point where you, you accept and submit to what is happening with you. And I think that's the stage that uh, many countries are in now, sadly, not all countries, but sure. many countries are, are in, that you then are able to move forward and say, okay, what do I want my life to be like moving forward? So with cancer, with the pandemic, I certainly see parallels and I see both being teachable moments about what it is that you want your life to look like after the cancer after the pandemic, if, if that makes any sense. Wow. That, that's really interesting. That's going to take me in so many places, but I want to ask you about your denial when you were first told by the doctors that, you know, the first, the first, I guess you found out you had two cancers in one. Mm -hmm. um, tell me about that denial. You talked about denial. Tell me about that. So in terms of context, I have been healthy my entire life. Yeah. And so, you know, even when I would take a couple of Tylenols, you know, my family would be up in arms. What's going on with you? You know, that you need Tylenols. <clears throat> and so when I ended up in the emergency unit at Toronto General Hospital, I um, really thought that, you know, my hemoglobin was low. I'd get a transfusion. I'd come home. The doctors would put me on iron pills and life would move on. Um, sure. But that was not the case. You know, um, they recommended that I stay in emergency longer. And there were tests after tests after tests that night. And um, I think it was the very next day that Dr. Wu, you know, came into our room. Um, Nagib and I were sitting and we were actually at that time speaking about how I was feeling really guilty about taking a hospital bed, um, you know, from someone who potentially needed it more than me, you know, mm. 
and he comes up and he says, you've got, you've got multiple myeloma and it's an incurable cancer. You know, and I had never heard of myeloma, didn't know what it was. Um, so we immediately went to Mr. Google <laughs> and found out some, some horrible facts uh, about myeloma. And, you know, I don't think I was ready to accept that. It was complete and absolute denial, complete and absolute denial. Um, until two weeks later, when I was diagnosed with a second cancer, and this is stage four non-Hodgkin lymphoma, which was really aggressive, you know? And so you're absolutely right. It was like a double whammy for me, mm -hmm. you know, double whammy, two cancers and complete denial. I don't think I actually totally accepted this, um, for like a good six months, like for a good six months, it was like, okay, let me do what the doctors asked me to do. I'm going to be a good patient. I'm going to do my part. And then I'm going to go back to work and life's going to be normal. But yeah. it wasn't until six months later, you know, that it kind of really sunk in for me that no, life's not ever going to be normal and that I better deal with it. What was, was there something that happened? that you said, okay, I better, I better deal with this now? There was a couple of things. One is, I think in my head, um, I had thought, and, and, and this was a number that was given to me, that I didn't have more than six months to live. So, so for the first You were told that? Sorry to interrupt. You were told that by the doctors? Yeah, pretty much. I, I remember, given my circumstances, it, it was not looking very good that I was going to make it through. So somehow, somewhere in my head, you know, I gave myself six months, you know. And so then I started to think, now, if I'm going to die in six months, I, I need to figure out how I'm going to, you know, spend the next six months. And really, it was around you know, decorum, and I became really serious <laughs> because I thought I was going to die, and so I needed to be really serious, you know, and that's not the way that I, I am. And, and I remember, <laughs> you know, when that six-month countdown came and I was still alive, I thought, okay, well, this kind of sucks, you know, I, uh, I'm here and I'm, I'm alive, and so clearly I'm not dying. <laughs> so... <laughs> So maybe I need to really figure out how to live. But it was this thing that I concocted in my brain based on what I heard or didn't hear, which was, you know, I had six months. And so I was going to maintain proper decorum. <laughs> but now what, is that, what does that mean? Because, you know, many people, you know, ask themselves this question. They ask their friends this question. And it's more about, you know, what would you do if you knew when you were going to die? Right. And essentially you, you were given this, you were saying, Munira, you've, we believe you have six months. Right. Right. And you know, a lot of people say, Oh, I travel the world. I, I wouldn't care. I do this. I do that. You talk about decorum. Can you explain that to me? Like, what do you mean by decorum? <laughs> well, you know, while I was in the hospital, really, really sick, I decided that, you know, when I died, people would come home, you know, to, okay to uh, pray and stuff. And I thought I really wanted my home to be um, looking good. And so while I'm in the hospital, I contracted with somebody to put hardwood floors in my home <laughs> because <laughs> I, <laughs> I uh, really wanted, you know, my place to look decent. And I, uh, you know, worried about things like, you know, a will, I worried about um, taking care of what my funeral would look like and how I could take away the burden from my family if I were to plan it. I thought about, you know, what I could say to each individual in my family that are so important to me, you know? So it was really a, a serious um, time. Uh, it was really around how do I put all my affairs in order mm. so that when I died, um, my family did not need to worry about what to do because I would have taken care of all of that. 
So did you get all that settled within six months? That and more and more. That and so now you so now you're no matter what happens or whatever, everything is good. Everything is so <laughs> good. And I think you know, that's one of the biggest lessons that I learned uh, from cancer, which is, um, you know, cancer, when you've got uh, limited time, when you're living on borrowed time, mm. you know, very, very quickly, you start to realize what is important in your life and what are things that you don't pay attention to. And, you know, today I sit in that place of such clarity you know, there's three or four or five things that are really important to me. And I invest time and I invest energy in those things. Um, and I've become very, very good at saying no, because every time I say yes to something, I think about what I'm saying no to and vice versa. Hmm. I, uh, I don't waste uh, time on things that I have learned are not important to me. So, you know, it's one of those things. I don't like to say that cancer is a gift because in my case, it's a gift that keeps giving. <laughs> and it's not a gift that I would um, ever wish on anybody. But having mm. said that, you know, if I could look cancer in the eye, you know, there's so many wonderful lessons I have learned, you know. Um, part of it is, is exactly that, you know, what is important to me and how do I live my life now so that it is joyful. Wow. Can you tell me one of these things that you say no to, one of these things that you find is not in your top five things that you want to accomplish, want to do? Uh, I, I want, I, I'm curious about that. Yeah, maybe I can answer this in a, in a little bit of a different way. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> Pre-cancer, uh, you know, my focus was really on the external world. You know, it was around titles and work and um, getting ahead at work. And it was all around um, the house. You know, everything was external. It was, you know, how much money I was making. And I, I don't think that I did that consciously. It was just where my head was at, you know. Um, everything was external to me. And, uh, and so that's where I put a lot of my attention and energy, you know? Mm. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't regret any of that time because I, I think I had quite the reputation in the industry, you know, for doing good work and, you know, give this to Munira and it'll get done, it'll get done really well and it'll be, get done, you know, quicker than you imagine, you know, that kind of thing. And I, I appreciated that. But, you know, so much of who I was was based on external validation. Okay. Um, and now it's, it's really quite different because the external validation means very little to me. It's really around the internal. But what it meant is, Karim, I had to go from a place of do 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 all the time to a place of being you know of, of looking mm. internally of journaling of understanding um, you know deep down you know what was important so now when i think about the things i say yes to and i say no to um, i say no to a number of things externally because i want it to be liked i want yeah. it to be liked i wanted you know to be everything to everybody yeah. And I realize now that I wasn't taking care of me, if that makes sense. Huh. Um, this might be a silly question, but a number of years ago, an old friend of mine, uh, she got cancer. And uh, she was talking about her relationship with her hair. Um, yes. <clears throat> tell me about your relationship with your hair. Is that a, th is that a thing? <laughs> it was the first time. Okay. It was the first time. So, um, yeah, you know, I had to go through chemotherapy um, for the lymphoma. Um, and that's when my, my hair came out. And, you know, I had expected that because I had heard and I'd read. And so it, it wasn't a surprise to me. 
um, but it was still really quite emotional because I think uh, your hair is so much part of your identity, you know, mm. and, and suddenly to lose it. And, and I remember when I lost my hair, I was on heavy duty steroids. So it wasn't just losing my hair, but I was swollen. And okay. um, I, I remember looking like, um, like Brando, you know, in, in Apocalypse Now. <laughs> you the know, old I Brando. Like, yeah, the old Brando. I, I look like a man, you know, and, and, and it was very emotional for my mom. It was very emotional mm. for my family, you know, when, when I had to get my, my head shaved because it was painful and, you know, they were just dropping like, like crazy. But I'll tell you what was even harder for me. Uh, and this may come as a surprise, but what was harder for me was losing my eyebrows because you don't realize <laughs> how your eyebrows actually frame your face. And I remember, you know, one time when I actually, um, in the middle of the night, you know, I, I went to the bathroom and I looked at myself in the mirror and I screamed, like I totally screamed. And, and it wasn't the hair, it was really the eyebrows. Because imagine when you have no eyebrows, you know, how yeah. it just doesn't, like the face just doesn't come together. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then, you know, I've probably lost my hair with the three cancers. I've probably lost my hair six or seven times. And each time wow. it's been easier. The first time was hard. And then, you know, you, you figure it'll grow. And then when it grows, it grows funny. You know, I have straight hair. And then the first time it grew, it came back incredibly curly. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, and, and I understand that that's a thing. Okay. <laughs> a lot of people, a lot of my friends that I speak with say that, you know, sometimes the hair will come back a different color. Sometimes it'll come back, you know, a different texture. So, yeah, it's a thing. I think cancer likes to have fun. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, one of the things that Casimir has learned in science uh, since, uh, since lockdown is, uh, is stem cells. What are stem cells? And, and I know that uh, I saw a Instagram post maybe mm -hmm. uh, recently where you shared pictures of, I think it was an anniversary of some stem cell transplant that, right. that you were undergoing. Um, mm -hmm. Tell me about that, that, that whole science of stem cells and um, why you were um, getting this particular transplant. One of the cancers that, uh, that I was diagnosed with is multiple myeloma. And okay. multiple myeloma is a cancer really of the bone marrow. And if wow. you think about the bone marrow, you know, that's the part of your body that creates your red blood cells, white blood cells. It creates your platelets. So it's, it's a really critical um, organ in your body. And... Uh, you know, you, you need that across your body, right? The, the blood, the, the white mm. blood cells, etc. So, um, so that's where the, the cancer was. And uh, the treatment, one of the treatments, if you qualify for it, uh, for multiple myeloma, which is an incurable cancer, one of the treatment options to give you longevity is, is the stem cell transplant. So the way it works is that you go to the hospital mm -hmm. and what they do is they remove stem cells from your body. So this is called an autologous um, stem cell transplant. So they remove um, stem cells from your body and then um, those stem cells are frozen until such time that you go for the stem cell transplant. Okay. Right? And so this is different from leukemia, for instance. So in leukemia, you need to find a donor mm -hmm. to match the, um, your, your, your own system. But in myeloma, it's your own stem cells that are used. Oh. So what happens is the stem cells are frozen. Mm -hmm. And then um, when it's time to get your stem cell transplant, and this is what a lot of people don't understand, before the stem cells can be put into your body, um, your body needs to be free of cancer. So you go through four months or so of chemotherapy, and then the day before the actual stem cell transplant, um, there is this incredibly heavy-duty 
chemo that's that's given to you and i call that the mother of all chemos it is the strongest possible chemo to remove any last bit of cancer that's in your body and that's critical karim and the reason it's critical is because if there is cancer in your body and then you put stem cells in you can imagine that that wouldn't work so the heavy duty chemo gets rid of the cancer the stem cells are put into your body the stem cells then attach to different organs in your body because these are baby stem cells yeah and the whole idea if the stem cell transplant is successful is that those stem cells then um, grow and they you know find places that they connect with and you end up um you know with the an incredible system where these new stem cells give you life for another few years. Wow. So you say it's incurable, yes. but you rid your body of it. Yeah, it comes back though. So the first time I had my stem cell transplant was seven years ago. Mm-hmm. And typically on average, I would say that you need to have a second stem cell transplant um, in about two and a half to three years average. Um, I was incredibly lucky, you know. Um, I was able to go seven years before I required a second stem cell transplant, which was about six months ago. Oh, wow. So I had my second transplant. And just so you know, um, with multiple myeloma, the protocol is that they will remove enough stem cells from your body for two transplants. After the second transplant, um, there is no third transplant at this point anyway, or that's not the protocol. Wow. So, okay. So you have one that is, is there, but is under control. Is it under control? Is how do you, how do you, how do you describe that? So um, the first time I had the stem cell transplant, yeah. you, know, you go back to the uh, oncologist, they do a bone marrow, examination um you know the blood work like extensive stuff you know mm-hmm. and uh they monitor numbers very 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 carefully so yes there was a point after my first transplant where the cancer went down to zero but because it's not a curable cancer it starts to inch its way up so when it starts to inch its way up you know there is a time when you require a second transplant okay and so the other thing that is interesting is if the first transplant lasts you seven years, mm-hmm. typically the second transplant has a half shelf life. So the second time you get a transplant, you don't get seven years. Typically you get half of that. So do you think about that, Munira? You, I, I don't know. Tell me about like you, you know, going in and I'm, I'm, you must be comfortable talking about this. Um, so, uh, you know, not, but, but tell me, like, knowing that there's another time frame that you have, before what? Like, so what, ha- what do you foresee happening in three years? I don't think about it very much at all. And, and the reason I say that is, you know, um, seven years ago, or eight years ago when I was first diagnosed in 2012. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I almost lost my life. I was in intensive care unit and I was so incredibly sick. My hemoglobin had gotten down to 36. And just to provide you context, typically um, hemoglobin for a woman, you know, is healthy woman, 120 to 140, give mm-hmm. or take. Um, and uh, my hemoglobin had gotten down to 36. And really, your chances of survival at that point are, are not good. And, you know, they had told me in, in the emergency unit, they had prepared us that I, I would likely not make it through the night. And they had prepared us that every organ in my body was going to shut down one at a time, you know. And uh, unless by some miracle, um, they were able to find the right blood for me because by this time, and and sorry to get complicated, but my body had created antibodies. So just give me O positive, you know, was not going to do it. It had to be tested for so many different um, markers. And uh, 
and you know the chances of that happening were really nil so i guess i made my peace in that intensive care unit that day i i really had made my peace um, i thought it was really the last time i was going to see my family and then by miracle of mm. miracles you know they found the blood yeah it was infused in me and i actually walked out of intensive care the very next day completely to the shock of <laughs> every doctor that i knew and so do i think about what's going to happen in 3 years 3 and a half years no i've really made my peace you made and, your peace uh, yeah. it's about now for me it's about living mm. in the here in the now living in the present um yeah i don't really concern myself much about the past or the future you talk about that one of the things you wanted in your book were the voices of your family because you say that um you didn't go through this alone that your family and in general caregivers also go through um the battle with cancer um and so i'm i'm curious you know you've made your peace um tell me about the discussion or discussions you've had with your family about that and have do you have they made their peace you know thank you so much for asking me this question um you you're absolutely right um this book that i wrote i think is really unique in that perspective you know because it tells about the journey my journey with you know battling three advanced cancers but the truth is you don't do cancer alone you you just don't you know mm -hmm. and i really believe that it's your caregivers that are the true heroes of the journey because you as the patient have to go through what you have to go through yeah but it's the caregivers around you that are so helpless you know they see a loved one go through this and they don't know what to do you know and uh, mm. it was really important for me that their voices be heard and i think that's what makes this book unique and you know i pitched this book to a, a few editors and i said this this is how i'd like to tell the story and you know um the editors that i spoke with said no this is too confusing this is too confusing you need to find out how they were feeling and then you need to tell that in your own words and i said no that's a non negotiable for me yeah you know i i need their voices to be heard and uh you know that's one of the reasons i'm just so grateful that mowenzi house you know who are the publishers of this book saw what i was trying to do and from an editing perspective you know mg vasanji two two time um to giller prize winner mm -hmm. was the editor of this book and it must have been so hard for him to keep all the voices together you know um and 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 that's one of the things that i'm really thrilled about because the book has a flow and my husband uh, nagib and my daughter sabrina and my son shane have their voices and you know the other part of this um to answer your question is i didn't even know what they were feeling or thinking mm. um until they were writing it you know when they wrote it i'd go oh my goodness is is this really what went on for you mm. you know is this how you really felt like i'm 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 so sorry when i when i when i see this i'm i'm sorry i wasn't there to to appreciate it you know um so it was a really uh, it was a, it was tough writing this book very tough writing this book wow um we talked earlier about uh, how life has changed uh specifically around covid because you know you've got it a a compromised system so you've got to be although you've always worked for, or you've been working from home for a while um there's still things that you have to be careful of one of them is not going grocery shopping yes uh and your husband going grocery shopping yes <laughs> and when i read that blog post i go that's me <laughs> but one of the things i get frustrated is when minaz doesn't pick up the phone so i can ask her what is this what package 
What kind of packaging does it come in? Right. Where do you find icing sugar? You know, is that exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, I, I know I wrote that post and I still continue to get feedback on that post. People are continuing to, to respond to it. Um, and I remember when I was writing that post, I was laughing so hard. I just could not control myself because I was writing this post as Nagib was um, grocery shopping, you know? Yeah. And I think, you know, we're beginning to learn uh, so much more about each other. And, and part of it is that I do all the grocery shopping, you know, with my mom. That's our thing to do. And Nagib tends not to, you know, be bothered with that. Sure. And so, yeah, you know, when he came home that day, it was so funny. But, you know, he gave me a lot of feedback about the next time I give him a list, it has to be done by aisle, you know, and pictures would be nice. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, uh, um, you know, he couldn't believe how many different types of apples there were, you know. There, and, yes. Yes, exactly. Specific right? apples. Whole, quantity. Exactly. Quantity. You've got to tell him quantity. Don't just say apples. How many apples That's do you right. want? That's uh, right. So I, I, ended I need up that too. Getting, yeah, I ended up getting God knows, I don't know, like 10 eggplants. And, uh, you know, it was, <laughs> just, it was just so funny. And, uh you know, the, the good news is he's a trooper and he said he was willing to try this again, but I, I, I didn't want to really burden him with that. So now we've gone the online shopping route. <laughs> okay. Oh my goodness. Um, I wanted to ask you about like all these surgeries that yes. you, that you've had. Um, I've only had the um, it sounds weird, but I've only experienced surgery once for myself. Um, and I remember many, many years ago undergoing liver surgery and I didn't know that. Yeah. This is, this was the year that Canada finally won the gold medal for Olympic ice hockey. Okay. So whatever year that was. Um, and so I never got to watch the game by the way, because I was under the knife at that exact time that they were playing. Um, Crazy how you timed that, eh? Yeah. But my family, they were out enjoying it. They were having fun watching the game. Um, but I remember sitting with a doctor and him saying, okay, I think we're going to do the surgery on this date. And I say, perfect. Just get this, whatever it is in my liver, just get it out of me. I'm sick of being here. Um, and him saying, wait, wait, wait. I have to tell you everything. I have to tell you what we're going to do. I have to tell you the risks. Um, you tell me about these conversations with, with your doctors as they're sitting down with you saying, okay, we're going to do whether it's a stem cell or whether it's the chemo, all these different procedures that you've had. Tell me about some of these conversations. So again, in terms of context, when I think about the multiple myeloma, the lymphoma, those are what are called orphan cancers, you know, um, unlike a cancer like breast cancer or prostate cancer, you know, which is more, more common. Um, and so with, uh, with lymphoma, with myeloma, I was incredibly lucky um, to have the oncologist that I had. So Dr. Tiedemann, my oncologist, had expertise in both cancers, in the lymphoma and the um, myeloma. And I got to tell you, from a patient's perspective, having the right fit with the doctor is critical. And yes. so the very, very first time I um, met Dr. Tiedemann, actually, we met him as a family. Uh, Shane and, and Nagib and I were there together. You know, our, our first uh, inkling when we saw him was, man, he's young, <laughs> you know, and Shane was was really thinking about, you know, already thinking about second opinions and I needed to go to Mayo Clinic and, you know, he had this Excel spreadsheet about all of this stuff. But one meeting with Dr. Tiedemann, you know, was enough for us to know that we were in, in the right hands. Mm. And, you know, I feel that way eight years later because the truth is he worries more about me than I worry about me, you know, and he I know. He doctor. That, yeah, my doctor. And he, uh, 
uh, he's just so incredibly competent and he is so compassionate. And he, um, he also, in addition to, to being an oncologist, also is very strong in research. That's mm. half of what he does, research. And so I'm in really good hands with him. And so, you know, when the, the other thing I love about him is his approach with me. You know, he doesn't say, we're going to do this. It's very much a partner in his saying, here's the situation, here's what I'm thinking, you know, how do you feel? Mm. And, you know, we, as you know, Karim, are rather opinionated as a family. Yes. <laughs> and we ask a lot of questions. And, uh, um, you know, he's, he's very respectful about that. And so I, I, um, it's one of those weird relationships where I actually so look forward to seeing him. <laughs> because I just know that I'm in great hands. And I have to say that that's true um, as well for um, my doctors at North York mm-hmm. uh, for the breast cancer, you know, the same, the same uh, thing. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it comes down to fit. It comes down to fit and it comes down to um, a trust and it comes down to faith. And with the breast cancer, it was much easier because there is such a protocol. If you have this kind of breast cancer, then this is what you follow. If you have this other kind of cancer, breast cancer, this is what you follow. So the protocol for breast cancer is pretty Uh, much. You had, um, sorry, your doctor's name again, Tiederman? Yeah, Dr. Tiederman. He wrote your, the foreword in your book. He did. Yeah. What was that conversation like asking him to do that? You know, I just asked and I said, Dr. Tiedemann, I'm writing this book <laughs> and I'd love for you to write a forward. And without even a thought, he said, I would be delighted to. And then at every clinic visit, you know, it was like, how far along are you? What's happening? <laughs> You're um, asking him. <laughs> he's asking me. Oh, he's asking he's, you about your book. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> continues to, to to do that you know and and so he's he's very he's just just an incredible an incredible human being an extraordinary human being um you're a very positive person um always a smile on your face um tell me about and i have to say um there must be times where you break down, where you get angry. Um, tell me about some of those. Tell me about you get, the anger you must have felt or the sometime along the road whereby not just, not just one, but then two and then three and then your issues with hemoglobin. Uh, you know, how many, how many times did you swear in how many different languages? <laughs> t- t- tell me about the role that emotions like anger and fear played? You'll be surprised to hear there was very little in terms of fear because I had accepted and submitted. Mm. And perhaps I can talk a little bit about that piece because sure. I think it informs everything I do. Um, so I think it was six months um, after I was diagnosed with the first two cancers. Um, And I remember that moment, actually, when I had a conversation with God and I said, okay, you are the master architect. You are the producer. You are the director. You obviously know the plan and I don't. Mm -hmm. I don't understand all of this, but you do. And I trust in you. So I just want you to know that I am completely submitting to your will. And all I ask is for two things. One is allow me to go through this with grace and, you know, look after my family, you know, Mm. through this time, you know, and I can't even begin to tell you the freedom that I got from, from doing that. And, you know, um, when I talk about submission and acceptance, it's not, passive. It's not about 
um, saying, you know, this is my fate. It's, it's not about that at all. It's about acceptance that this is where I'm at and um, choosing hope and faith as a way to find a way forward. So not choosing anger, not choosing fear, you know, not choosing any of that, but literally choosing consciously hope. Because when I would come from that place of hope and faith that things are happening, I may not understand it, but there is a larger plan. Mm -hmm. You know, I just find that um, my mind, my heart, my soul, my body, my gut, everything aligns uh, very positively to that energy. Hmm. So yes, there have been times when, when I have been very angry. One time in particular, for instance, is um, when I went for my breast uh, cancer surgery, right? So I go for the surgery and it's just a tiny lymph node. They remove uh, the lymph node and then, you know, there's a biopsy. And the whole idea was, you know, the plan is you get this surgery and then we go to radiation. So, you know, we all bought into that plan. And then the biopsy comes and they had removed 16 lymph nodes Whoa. from my underarm. And every one of those 16 lymph nodes came back cancerous. You know, that moment, I, I think I had a breakdown because all of a sudden it wasn't simple anymore. You know, it, it wasn't. I mean, now I had to go for um, chemotherapy, which was not in the works. And, you know, 16 lymph nodes, we're talking um, the cancer having metastasized. And, you know, for any cancer patient or their family, the worst word in the English language is metastasize. What does you know, that mean? It means, it means when the cancer has gone beyond the local and has spread further. And in my case, it had gone to 16 of those lymph nodes. Every one of them had cancer. And so, you know, I was really angry. I cried a lot. I, um, you know, the only thing is I don't stay there very long. Mm. You know, I allow myself, you know, to be, to feel this way, depending mm -hmm. on the scope of the circumstance, you know, for 20 minutes or for two days or for two weeks. And then I don't live there. It's just mm. a, a temporary holding space. Wow. Um, I totally forgot to ask you this question when you, we were talking about uh, uh, your, your, your battle with your low hemoglobin count. Uh, is that when you guys were naming each of these blood? What, what, like, what, is, what were the, these blood packets or something? Or Right. So I needed, uh, this was... Um, when I almost died, when I was in intensive care, uh -huh. and we had the blood lab trying desperately to find the right blood for me. My That's human right, yeah. blood is 36. Um, the emergency doctors had pretty much given up hope that I was going to make it. Mm -hmm. um, we were talking about last rites, you know, so, so the situation was pretty dismal. And um, uh, it was honestly, I believed as well, the last day that I would uh, see my family. And so, <laughs> you know, you have my, my, my daughter, Sabrina, and her boyfriend, who's now her husband, Afsal, there. You have um, Shane and um, Shane's friend, Aliyah Sundarji, who's a, who's a doctor now, um, waiting in the, in the room. And you have Nagib. And, uh, you know, they were trying to bring some levity to the situation because it didn't look like I was going to make it. And so the whole idea was, let's name each one of these, <laughs> this blood type. So each one of us got a chance to, to, uh, to name them. And every time I've had a transfusion, we always name the, <laughs> it, it, there's, there's something about the humanity. And we remember, you know, the people that donated blood to save mm. a life. So mm. there's, there's something beautiful about naming <laughs> the, the bags that, that, that make them feel human, right? Yeah. Wow. So do you name anything else weird? <laughs> yeah, well, the names were um, Eva for one, Massimo for another, 
Cullen for uh, uh, another. And then the name that, uh, uh, that really stuck for us was Popat. And that came from my son, Shane. I don't even know why. But yeah, different, different names. Each time there's a blood transfusion. And I've had so many, many, many blood transfusions over the last eight years. And you always name them. Always name them. <laughs> always name them and always say prayers, you know, for, the, for those that donated the blood to keep wow. me alive. It's, it's interesting because there's a, um, they're, they're having a shortage now of, of blood, donated blood, because everyone, you know, people don't want to go out and, and sort of do that. And there's, there's a drive going on right now. And, um, you know, because of my infatuation with tattoos, I've been unable to donate blood for a while, but I finally signed up. So in a couple of weeks, I'm going to, oh, uh, yeah. So, so to, proud of you. You know, um, the need for blood is, is, is really critical, mm -hmm. especially now. And uh, I think only 5% or so of those who are eligible to donate blood actually wow. do donate blood. And the statistics are that for every time you donate blood, you can save up to three lives. Wow. So I'm very proud of you. Thank you. Um, did you ever consider alternative medicine at all? Like, no, I don't want to go through chemo. It's, I've heard horrendous stories. I'm going to go and do this other thing. I never did. And I think part of it is, you know, once I had trust and faith in the doctors that were put my way, um, it just made sense to, to move forward that way. You know, having said that, um, I would um, try things like uh, acupuncture, acupressure, you know, stuff like that. But that was really uh, as a supplement, not as the cure, not as the treatment. Fair, fair. Um... One of the things that I had to, to think about before I spoke with you was knowing what questions not to ask you. Um, because I'm sure you get probably get asked the same question by friends, by people who mean well, um, so many times over and over and over again. Um, so I want to ask you this question. Go on. I'm curious. Now I'm like, what? Wait, what? And, and I know you're so positive, but I need you to tell me what things do have people said to you that you are, uh, for lack of a better way to phrase this, that you're sick of hearing all the time. <laughs> you know, that's a really good, good question question and I, I actually write about that in the book you know I think uh, the chapter is titled something like the top 10 darnest things people tell you oh yes 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 that's right that's right yeah and, yeah and you know it's 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 so interesting and, and I know that people mean well but oftentimes the conversation would be something like uh you have cancer and you know my mother's uh, um aunt's uh, cousin's husband, you know, had cancer and usually it ends with, and he died. Mm. You know, and I find that a bit, bit interesting. No, now I find it humorous. Um, you know, there was, there was one that I found really quite interesting. It was a waitress at uh, a restaurant that we, we love to frequent for breakfast. And she said, uh, yeah, I know exactly how you feel. My dog has cancer. And, you know, I had to kind of process that. And, and then I recognized that really her dog for her was, was everything, you know? So it really is where that person is coming from. Or um, uh, one that I get a lot is, you know, you're such a positive person and you're, you're, you've done good stuff and, you know, why you? You know, yeah. and I need to say to them, you know, cancer does not discriminate. <laughs> mm. You know, anybody can get it. So it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, and, and what I write in the book is sometimes all you need is for someone to come to you and say, hey, I, I can't even begin to imagine what you're going through, but just know that uh, I'm here, you know, and if there is anything that I can do to, 
to to support or you know um, when somebody would drop off um, flowers or when somebody would drop off uh, a carrot cake. I had a lot of really wonderful people in the community uh, and I felt such tremendous love, you know, when um, I, I'd write in a blog that I really like uh, whole nut chocolates and the following week. Oh my, <laughs> I love whole nut. <laughs> yeah, I would end up with 10 whole nut chocolates and emails saying, this one's from London, England, like it's the real deal, you know? <laughs> uh, so there's so many ways for people to show love. Yeah. And, you know, I, That's I, so I true got irritated by it but it was more uh it was just funny you know what what people would say yeah you you said something interesting about cancer doesn't discriminate and um a few years ago i don't know what was happening or what was going on but i had this conversation about with someone about cancer um and it was this whole idea of i think we were talking about i think we're talking about the different charities there were and where a lot of money seems to go and stuff. And again, this was not based on any research any of us were doing, but it was all on, oh, you know, there's all these, you know, cancer charities and a lot of money goes there. Um, and, I, and I remember saying something to the effect of, in my community, our community, you know, cancer is not the big thing. It's heart disease. You know, our community battles with heart disease over and over and over again. Um, I don't know why I'm telling you this, but... Um, oh, this is what I wanted to ask you. Um, I, I, knowing the type of person you are, I'm sure you never thought of this, but I'm curious about your, in terms of you never thought the way I, I used to think, but I'm curious about your, if you ever had a relationship or your thoughts about cancer before it came knocking on your door. You know, Karin, the, the truth is I didn't give cancer much thought mm. i mean from a donation perspective yes you know i i have supported a, a number of different uh, organizations mm -hmm. um, including you know the the, the the cancer society but no i never really gave cancer much thought i never mm. gave death much thought sure was not uh, part of my radar you know it yeah. really was not something i concerned myself with, you know, I didn't have family members who went through it. Um, so it was not something that I really was connected with in, 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 in any way. Today's a different story, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, there was, you said, you put something up on Facebook not too long ago. Yeah. Someone had said, Five years ago, when people were asked, where do you see yourself five years from now? Everybody's wrong because nobody saw themselves where we are today. Um, so I want to ask you uh, this question. Uh, and as, as I'm thinking about it, I, I, it's, it's, it's now this is one of those stupid questions. Um, <laughs> I like stupid questions. <laughs> no, this is really stupid. Uh, but because I don't like editing, this is going to stay in. Um, where... Where do you see yourself if, 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 where do you see yourself five years from now? So I got to tell you, um, I, I love this question. And, and the reason I say that is because uh, I am so great about making lists. I have lists on everything and I love writing them down. And so I have bucket list items big time. Oh, tell me. Bucket list items big time. So I want to go and see Stephen Colbert in New York. He is amazing. I haven't had a chance to. You will love it. Yeah, yeah. Try, try not to go in the summertime. Okay. Try to go off season. Uh, and uh, I'll tell you this, if you, you will love it. You will love it. Amazing. Um, I think there may be another book in me that I'd like to write. Ah. Um, I want to be a grandmother, although that's not very much in my control. Um, I'd love to travel more of the world. I, uh, I've come to realize that that is something that is important to me. Um, I wanted to start a podcast, which I'm actually starting on mm -hmm. Monday. So I'm, I'm super, super excited about that. Um, I, I want to learn Canva, you know, the, gra what? the graphics design 
it's this graphics design thing that you do. And okay. I've decided I want to learn that. I want to learn about Greek mythology. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so my bucket list um, is, is wonderful because it grows and it grows. And then I find that I accomplish so much and then I revisit it. So I'm revisiting my, my bucket list every three, four, five months. But I got to tell you, I'm living fully and fearlessly every day, every moment of every day. And uh, sometimes I have to remind myself, you know, the lessons that cancer taught me, which is slow down, take a pause uh-huh. and just be. But so much of part of who I am is, is being productive and getting things done. And so, yeah. you know, while we're working at home, Nagib and I, you know, he looks at me in, in complete shock on a daily basis, shakes his head and he says, do you ever stop? And, and I really don't think he means this in a positive way. <laughs> we're working through that. <laughs> yeah. But the point I'm trying to make is uh, I, I just have so many goals and dreams and some are small and some are medium sized and some are huge. And uh, I'm uh, on track to, uh, to meeting them. Tell you know, me about- I kind of want to be that person, you know, uh, at the end of my life, I want to be that kind of person. I think it was Bernard Shaw that said it, you know, like that, that, that rag that is completely used up because they've used up every little gift of life and lived it so fully that, you know, they're ready to go. I kind of want to be, you know, like that. I, I just, mm. and I'm, I'm kind of doing that now. <laughs> You sound like somebody who, when they go on a vacation, you're not somebody who'll sleep in. No. You'll, you'll wake up early, have breakfast on a cafe to watch people walk by. You got it. Anything, <laughs> anything that brings joy. And, uh, you know, I find joy in watching people, you know, yeah. like you suggested. And I find joy in new birds that are showing up in our in our trees lately and in the rabbit that showed up um, in our backyard yesterday. And I find joy when there's hail outside and, you know, it makes that pitter patter noise on the pavement. And yeah, I, I find joy in, in everything. And I'm finding that my life right now is in such wonderful flow. And I like that word. I like the word flow. There's something about flow that just makes me happy. Wow. Tell me about the second book. What do, what do you want to write about? Ah, I have given it some thought. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to write a book in the, in the title, the, the working title of the book is What You Want to Be Remembered For. Wow. And so I've looked it up and I've done some research and there doesn't seem to be many books on that topic. Uh-huh. And... Uh, I, I see this as a three-part book, and I've, I've got it in my head. So I just need to, you know, make the time to actualize it. If there's one thing, Munira, that you want to be remembered for, uh, what would that one thing be? That's a tough one. I think I'd like to be remembered as someone who brought out the best in others. I think that would make me feel really good in terms of leaving a legacy. Mm -hmm. That's a really good one. I need to do a little bit more journaling about that. (laughs) Monero, I can talk to you for hours. (laughs) Um, You. I don't want this to be one of those things you say no to again. So um, before I let you go, um, people are going to want to know where they could learn more about you, order your book. Is there, is there one place that people can go to for that online? You know, Karim, I can never follow directions completely. So I will tell you two things. Okay. <laughs> one is in, to order the book, which is called Choosing Hope. One Woman, Three Cancers. Um, you can get that at Amazon. You can get that at Indigo um, or at mowenzihouse.com. They're the publishers of the book. And uh, to learn more about me, 
Munira, www.munirapremji.com. Munira, thank you so much for and spending time. Would love for you to tune in to my podcast, which is coming up. And that podcast is called Choosing Hope ordinary people doing extraordinary things and that'll be available everywhere everywhere um hopefully fingers crossed starting june 1st starting june 1st and if people went to your website after june 1st they'll be able to find a link to your to your podcast i'm guessing yes right i'd forgotten about that <laughs> yes, they will absolutely they will <laughs> something to write down on your to-do list you got it Awesome. Manira, this has been a pleasure of mine. Thank you so much. And it has been a delight for me. You know, I've never done a podcast before, been a guest on a podcast. And thank you for making it so easy. You, you just have a knack for this. And I, I really, really appreciate the opportunity.